Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the QuietMark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO at QuietMark. And QuietMark is the independent global certification program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. Through scientific testing and assessment, QuietMark identifies the quietest products in multiple categories spanning many sectors, including home appliances and technology, building sector materials, and commercial sector products. A couple of episodes ago on the Quiet Mark podcast, we focused on the Sound of the Year Awards with Matthew Herbert, the creative director of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and Cheryl Tipp, curator of wildlife and environmental sounds at the British Library, both of whom were judging the Sound of the Year Awards. And on that show, we took a brief look at the art of field recording, which is something we want to take a deeper step into today. So we're joined by two very special guests, the first of whom is someone many consider to be the godfather of field recording, Bernie Krauss, who, for 52 years and 10 months, which is about my age, has run Wild Sanctuary. And Bernie was a judge on the Sound of the Year Awards. And the other guest is Melissa Pons, who herself was shortlisted in the Best Field Recordist category for her incredible wolf soundscapes work. So I'm going to read their bios and then introduce them to the show. So let's start first with Melissa's, which I'm going to read from her lovely website. On it, she says, and it's in first person, she says, I am a field recordist and I record slow. What's that, you might ask? Well, whenever I set into a new location or object, the cultural context is taken into account. I like the idea of understanding a new place through not only its geography, but also its history and culture and how it's perceived by its people. Usually, I study and research these factors deeply, but I let the soundscapes take me by surprise. I thrive on the feeling of newness and of experiencing things for the first time. A place is unequivocally linked to how people form their identities, and from this link, all aspects of life, including culture, are deeply rooted and in constant transformation. Melissa goes on to say, I come from a background of music and sound design, and I have, in fact, worked for over six years in the Scandinavian and Portuguese industry. I still love sound design and feel at home in certain projects. After all, providing voice to a story through the sound I create is my passion. I had, however, disconnected from most industrial exploitative and egotistical environments I have encountered, and nowadays I'm only working with meaningful projects. My main interests orbit around anthropology, forests, culture and social justice. For each project, a part of the profit made goes back into the institutions or committees that support much-needed causes and that had welcomed and guided me. I want to make the world a better place, and this is the very direct way to do it. Moving on to Bernie, who I'm reading from uh, a paper that I saw on Stanford University's website, which describes Bernie as soundscape ecologist, musician and author. It says, Bernie Krauss has recorded and archived the sounds of the natural world for more than 50 years. Working at the research sites of Jane Goodhall, Birut Galdikas and Diane Fossey, He identified the acoustic niche hypothesis, ANH, as each organism establishes frequency and or temporal bandwidth in order to vocalise unimpeded within its given habitat. Krauss's archive of environmental sound exceeds 5,000 hours of holistic habitat recordings that include 15,000 species. During his former life as a professional studio musician, Krauss occupied the infamous Pete Seeger slot in The Weavers, and with his late music partner, Paul Beaver, introduced the Moog synthesizer to pop music and film. The team's work can be heard on over 250 albums, including those of Van Morrison, Brian Eno, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, George Harrison and The Doors, and in 135 feature films, including Apocalypse Now, Rosemary's Baby, The Shipping News, and Castaway. He is also the author of three books, The Great Animal Orchestra, Finding the Origins of Music in the World's Wild Places, Voices of the Wild, and Wild Soundscapes, Discovering the Voice of the Natural World. So let's hear their voices now. Welcome to the show, Bernie and Melissa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us. Bernie, did I get the right number of books on that Stanford University Press? Uh, Add four more to those, Simon. Add four more? Yeah. 
You've got writer's cramp, I imagine. <laughs> there were some earlier, and there's one coming up in September, a new one. Oh, what's that one called? We'll look out for that. It's called The Power of Tranquility in a Very Noisy World. Mm, very apt title and something we'll talk a lot about on this show. So okay. if I may start with you both, but starting, put this question to you, Bernie, then to you, Melissa. Why do you record natural sound? The reason I record it is because it makes me feel good. And that's always been the driving force behind all of the work that I've done in the field. When I first went out to record in, in 1968, I had no idea about about recording in the in the wild. I only had an objective to capture a few sounds uh, for an album that um, my late music partner, Paul Beaver, and I were doing for Warner Brothers. It was called In a Wild Sanctuary. It's the first album ever on the theme of ecology and also the first to ever use natural sounds as a component of orchestration. And uh, so it meant that we had to go and capture those sounds. Uh, Paul didn't want to do that, so he left that job to me and I went off into a, you know, a, a small park just north of San Francisco where I was living at the time and um, managed to capture a few things very badly because um, I didn't really understand how to do that at that time. There were no mentors, there were no, uh, there were no books, there were no articles on the subject. So I was pretty much on my own. And uh, pretty, and for a long time, it was uh, it was pretty much that way because the the paradigms at the mo at, the, at that time uh, in recording sound in the in the natural world were mostly related to the capture of individual creatures. People would go out with these large parabolic dishes and record individual animals taken out of context of the of the whole uh, soundscape, right. and uh, that. And as a musician, that, that didn't appeal to me very much because I was hearing those sounds right off the bat from uh, when we first started to record. I was hearing those sounds as um, uh, a community of sound, an orchestra, or a proto-orchestra, if you want to call it that. Mm. And so that was, that was where I began, and that was kind of the trajectory that I've uh, followed ever since. Thank you, Bernie. And Melissa, we spoke in the introduction there about some of your reasons moving from sort of sound and music design in, uh, in, in a professional arena and some of the reasons why you went into uh, recording sounds of nature. But let me ask that question of you again. Mm -hmm. Why do you record nature sounds? Well, I like it as well, as Bernie says. Uh, obviously, that's the first uh, thing. So it was very much a free choice. And I like it because... Um, First of all, it gives me, it, it's, there's novelty in it all the time. So I think even if I spend six months in the same place uh, and then come back in the same period, there's all, it's always going to be novelty, uh, at least from my perspective. And I, I, I need that. That's very engaging for me. One of the other reasons that I really like is that it's a very free uh, uh, way for me to get to know something. I think I'm a pretty curious person and I can intersected with any other discipline that I like and I think through sound it allows me to develop in a very free way whatever I'm looking for and it can change it has been changing for the last you know four or five years but I really like that freedom uh, to do as I want and study everything by myself and of course it makes me feel really really good and it's a very free uh, solitary but very free uh, kind of work and uh, you know, I'm in charge of it somehow, uh, of, of my activity, not what is uh, going on in, in nature, but uh, that's also quite important for me. And I love to be outside and, uh, you know, watch and, and, and feel and, and, and learn um, everything in situ. So I think all of those reasons are probably like the, what makes the cake of it, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I'd like to add one thing, if I can, Simon, to uh, Melissa's um, e expression here. And that is, you know, she, she talked about hearing sounds for the first time. Well, there's never a time when you're listening to sounds. I just want to add one other thing to that. There's never a time when you're listening to sounds of the natural world that you're not hearing them for the first time. Because That's they're always, it. yeah, they're always changing. And so wherever Melissa goes and listens to this material, if she goes on, on a Monday, on Tuesday, it's going to be very different, even in the same place. Exactly. It's always novelty. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, novelty all the time. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I, I completely understand what she's saying when she says that. Uh, it, and it's very important. It, it's a very important component because while the context and the content may, may remain the same, the performance, the actual performance of these sounds is always changing. It's like it's like a great jazz performance or the original jazz performance. And it's really quite extraordinary uh, how that all comes about. And, and, and it's, it, Melissa's expression of that is the first time I ever heard that really uh, laid out in, in, in just those terms. Hmm. Interesting. How do you decide where you're going to go next? Uh, wherever there aren't a lot of people, wherever there isn't, um, well, it's like Bill McKibben says, he, he's a, an American author on environment. And uh, somebody once asked him, could you describe uh, what the wild is? And he says, yeah, he says, it's a place where uh, you can go for, uh, you can walk f in any direction uh, for a week and not hit a road or uh, 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 not, not hit a road or see another human. It's a place where you will not find signage on the, along the paths. It's a place where there would be no uh, ranger to tell you the life cycle of a bear. And best of all, it's a place where there's nothing to buy. And so those are my criteria for finding a wild place. If I can find something like that, I'm, I'm on my way. You sound like Harry Dean Stanton in Paris, Texas. <laughs> Just yeah. walking into the wild and, uh, until there's no one else around. Melissa, how do you decide where you're going to record next? Well, budget, uh, what it allows. And uh, more and more, I'm also extremely careful about uh, what sort of uh, intruding sounds for me uh, there might be. And if there might be a lot, I'm probably not going to go there unless it's something uh, very special. Uh, like when I recorded Wolves last year, um, it was not only very silent, uh, so it was difficult, but I think then the subject made it uh, worth it. Um, and then I'm typically interested in uh, sometimes I want to explore some sort of forest and uh, now I'm kind of trying I'm kind of turned into a desert somehow I don't really know why but I'm, I'm checking more into those areas so I think I just go along what I, I feel like pretty much and then with the budget constraints and what I can find you mentioned yeah. budgets and uh, Bernie I know that you know with all these podcasts we do a preparatory call before we come together for this call and you mentioned some commission from Cartier Foundation could you tell us a little bit more about what they've done with you Sure. Um, I did a book in 2012 that was called the, um, the Great Animal Orchestra, Finding the Origins of Music in the World's Wild Places. And uh, it was, it was uh, published by Hachette. The, um, uh, and the book was translated into French. There was a French anthropologist in, the, in Brazil uh, who works in Brazil with the Yanomami tribe. Albert Albert. Uh, he happened to get a hold Albert of this Albert. Yes, Bruce Haber, and uh, and uh, Bruce um, uh, read the book and and is a good friend of the director of the Fondation Cartier in Paris, and uh, so he he, called, he um, sent it to his attention so he could read it, and uh, it, after he read it, he just called me and he said, "Look, he says, is there something that we can do maybe together as a uh, as an exhibit for this work?" And so we came to California. We spent two weeks together going over uh, some of the material that I had. I had 16 or 17 different habitats that I thought might work for this exhibit. I had done many exhibits before, but most of them, uh, most of them here in the U.S. And uh, this is the last place in the world uh, until very, very recently uh, that anybody was interested in natural sound or soundscapes. So uh, most of my exhibits, and I did over 50 of them, uh, were uh, complete failures uh, because they really weren't interested in natural sound. They were interested only in filling space, kind of like natural sound is to film. 
is probably the last thing that anybody wants to wants to add to a film when all the budgets are gone. Mm. So it, was just, it had the same value here in in the U.S. with most of the museums. Um, so the the upshot was that I I was very skeptical of that at first, but uh, because of my experience in the past. But then they actually um, uh, dove down into the roots of this um, um, work and with extraordinary imagination and, uh, and willingness to reach out and try new things, uh, they put quite a bit of money behind the development of, of this, uh, this piece that I did for them. Um, and they, they, I wanted a very small room uh, that only a dozen people or so could be in to listen to the thing. He said, "No, no, no. We're going to be doing a room that's, that's, uh, you know, uh, 20 meters uh, long and and 15 meters wide and and you know six meters tall, and uh, and you're going to have a space here that's going to be a theatrical space that we're going to build for you for this piece." I said, "That's too much." And they said, "No, listen to us." <laughs> and so they, yeah, uh, I mean, I, because I was uh, so um, used to the ways in which people considered sound before. Mm -hmm. So they built this, this space, and in 2016, uh, using seven different sounds uh, uh, mixed to around 12 minutes each. Uh, so it was a piece that was, that was, that had a thread of, environmental uh, consciousness to it that ran 90 minutes. And people, and, and with a streaming spectrogram across these, uh, so an image of sound, there was no, there were no pictures of animals or anything like that because I consider that to be distracting. Mm -hmm. But they just played, it, they, it was just um, an image that related directly to the soundscape that was being performed at the time. And the only thing that was there that that people could see other than the image of the sound was a description of the featured uh, animal at that particular time in the uh, in the soundscape. So if a if a particular bird happened to be vocalizing at that moment, it was it was shown in text in the language where the where the exhibit was held. Right, right. And since we had it in Korea, we had it in Shanghai, we had it in. Milano, we had it in uh, London and, and Paris. So every, everywhere that it was um, presented, it had these descriptions. These only, only those descriptors were present. Okay. You, you mentioned that it wasn't a photograph of the animal because that would be distracting. You mentioned it was, a, what was it, an animation? Yeah. Was it a graphic? No, 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 no. Which is a graphic illustration of sound. It's the first time that we've been able to actually see sound. I mean, uh, I mean, think of the expression: "I see what you're, I see what you're saying." Yeah. How can you see saying? I hear what you're saying. So the the um, what we did is we tried to we tried to make that transition for people because we're a visual culture. Mm -hmm. Tried to make that transition for people so that they could actually see the sound that we've always been talking about but never been able to show and the spectrograms are a graphic illustration of that and that's what we're able to do now in real time and something i'm interested in there is that uh the cartier foundation you know you said you wanted a smaller room and they said no you're going to go large with this they commissioned this they really opened the door to something with this and it was yeah. shown around the world and visited by many visitors i take it it was well received well, it, since 2016, in these five different venues, over a million people have seen it to date. A million? Oh, my goodness. It opens in November here in the United States. Finally, there's a museum <laughs> in the United States that's going to know this stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're 20 years behind Europe. Oh, congratulations that it's actually opening there, there now. That's amazing that you are bringing the sounds of nature and your experience to such a broad number of people. Melissa... I follow you on Instagram. You're bringing sounds of nature to people in interesting ways. On a previous show, people have talked about Instagram being a visual medium, and we 
Bernie was touching there on people's prioritization as visuals as a medium. We've discussed that a lot on this show. But you're creating what I could only call soundograms, where you post lovely photographs on Instagram. It could be anything from a church to a train to scenes of nature. But you also record, you add your field recordings to these stills. That's a novel way of reaching a new audience. How's that going for you? And where did that idea stem from? Um, Well, I think it comes from a bad relationship I have to social media. Uh, I just think it's uh, it's it's very polluted with a lot of uh, content, and it just really saddens me that uh, it's more engaging to look at people's faces than uh, actual actual content. Um, and uh, I, I, of course, I you know I have to use it because it's the way to uh, show my work. Probably makes it ninety nine percent of it to to reach people. And uh, I just was thinking about ways to have an Instagram that was would be good to look at for someone who came into the profile or to the account. Um, and then I started to get a bit more interested in, in photography as well. Not claiming that I have good photography skills or anything, but I'm trying to be a little bit more careful. And so <laughs> there are some things that I like to look at. I think they are, uh, you know, very, you know, particularly interesting in a way. And if I have really liked something about that uh, soundscape that I recorded at, because I always take pictures of this for for register uh, with location and and so on. um, Sometimes there are things that are really nice and that I kind of really want to share earlier than putting it out on a field recording album uh, afterwards. Um, So I just made it really quick, Mm -hmm. you know, less than a minute. uh, And I think it's... um, it's nice. It's like a really. I think it's just becomes a really nice travel, and it's a kind of cute way to show uh, to show some work and to maybe engage people. Um, so it's uh, like making a little gallery with sound. I mentioned in the introduction that um, on a previous episode, we'd spoken with Matthew Herbert from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and Cheryl Tip at the British Library. And we touched Mm -hmm. on field recording in that episode. And there was something that Cheryl Tip said within that episode, which really resonated with our listeners. She said that she's seen sound move people to tears. And the example she gave was, she said, you know, there's a bird um, sound that they got at the British Library. And she said, this bird is now extinct. And if you show people a photograph of that bird, which is extinct, they're sad to see an image of a bird that they recognize doesn't exist on this planet anymore. And they're sad to a certain level. If you take them to a museum and they see a stuffed bird, of that, that same bird, it brings it to life even more that they can see it in three dimensions, they can see its plumage. But Cheryl put it like this, she said, but when you play the sound of that bird calling for its mate, and there is no mate for it to call anymore because of the way that people have treated the planet, and that bird is just singing alone in the forest and there's no mate for it to hear its call, she said that she has seen people moved to tears how would you respond to what cheryl has said there about sound's ability to move people bernie you want to jump in yeah i have an example of that uh simon on my uh at the end of my ted talk um there's a colleague of mine from minnesota who uh about 10 years ago recorded um he was recording around this pond in minnesota northern minnesota that was formed by uh, this beaver dam. So it, the oh. beaver dam created this whole ecosystem, which was a wonderful ecosystem and very vital and, and, uh, and alive. What happened was, um, what happened was he, he was recording there one afternoon uh, in the spring about 10 years ago when a couple of game wardens came in and dropped a stick of dynamite down the in the beaver dam, blowing it up and killing the the female and her offspring. And this guy captured the sound of this beaver swimming in slow circles at, uh, in the evening um, where the beaver dam, I mean, the, that whole pond had been diminished somehow. And the beaver, the male beaver, which he figured was the male beaver, was swimming in slow circles, crying out 
inconsolably for its lost mate and offspring. And I play that sometimes for people to show them that the voice of the natural world is, is conveying to us what we're doing to it and what, what the consequences of our actions are. And, um, and it, this does, she's, this gal at, at, at the British New Wildlife Sound is absolutely right. This does bring people to tears. It's very emotional. And then people say to you, well, you're, uh, you're being anthropomorphic. My answer to that is, yeah, okay. Uh, my morph is definitely anthropophic. And uh, <laughs> I think... I think of myself no different than any other animal that exists on this planet. And uh, this is my family. And I'm very close to it. I think it's really important to keep that family alive. They've got lots of stories to tell. The BBC recently launched a Soundscapes for Wellbeing website in response to demand during lockdown, the notion being that people locked down and locked in their homes aren't able to listen to nature as much as they, they could when they could get out and about. Although I think nature has become louder to us during, you know, with the absence of human noise. But um, I have cycled to gondola sounds and I've, I've been listening to a lot of uh, Melissa's uh, material uh, through her website which I've loved listening to as I do my dog walks and my cycle rides and just relax and even while I work. Melissa, how, what do you think of the well-being benefits of being a recordist and as a listener? As a recordist, um, well I think pretty much we really have to be on the ground um, and um, it's it, everything uh, that is mundane it just gets away. Uh, for me it's just uh, it, it, you know, it gives me um, a lot of headspace and uh, uh, connection, which I really try to avoid this word nowadays because some things are getting so um, so overused. <laughs> but it just reminds us that we are nature as well. Or for me, it reminds me that we are also part of nature and not separate from it. I think that's that's pretty important. Um, and I think it, this also goes against a bit of, of a romanticized uh, version of nature. Sometimes I think it's it happens a little bit. Um, and I think it's quite important to understand that nature is, is ruthless for whatever, whoever is open to, to think about it this way and you know, to, to understand that as well. Um, to understand how things work. Uh, it's not a Disney film, uh, obviously. Uh, and I think it's um, quite important. I do understand feeling um, relaxed some people uh, or you know a good amount of people uh, have been reaching out uh, reaching out to me saying that uh, there is someone that said that uh, uh, listening to my albums uh, helped them write their theses and they are really relaxing i think that is really great uh, but i do find that um some things that I record, I think they are a bit oppressive sometimes. Uh, not only animal calls or songs, but sometimes wind can be oppressive, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a beauty in everything, uh, I, but I, I find it quite interesting. And I, I, maybe it's this romanticized relationship to nature that somehow is created through media that makes people just see what is kind of... Uh, Pretty, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really an interesting uh, question for me. And um, as a listener, I think, you know, people can take the interpretation they want, I suppose, uh, of that. And uh, if people are looking forward, uh, looking forward for it to to relax and to have some sort of uh, well-being, I think it's it's fantastic that nature sounds can provide them that. Um, on the other hand, I do think that it's curious that it's generally, I feel that a lot of people uh, romanticize nature a little bit. So they're kind of just have this interpretation of it being uh, just kind of very graceful and kind of beauty slash glittery slash Disney film all the time. Um, and but but for me, things that I find it quite uh, oppressive that I record are quite oppressive, not only animal calls, but you know, sometimes there's some kind of strong winds, uh, winds on trees or other surfaces or, or, or so. 
I think it's um, for me they are oppressive, but other people find beauty. So I think it's also a question of uh, you know personal interpretation. Um, but I do th- I think it's important to understand that uh, nature is also ruthless and it has you know its own ways like we do. Um, I think I want to pass that message along more uh, if that is possible. Um, on the other hand, I my one of my first uh, field recording projects and definitely not one of my best, but um, it's the nocturnal sounds in the Atlantic forest. For me, it's also a happy place. And if I'm really stressed or I feel that I really need to wind down, that's something that I just put on my headphones. And uh, I do listen to that and it makes me feel really, really good. But I think it, uh, it has really to do with the experience that I had when I was there. You know, first time actually being in the middle of a Brazilian forest, um, in the middle of nowhere. Um, not that I found the sounds oppressive, I actually found them really uh, interesting and gentle and, and beautiful. But I, I do understand that side. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit itchy with a, with a romanticization that I feel. But it's a very personal opinion. Yeah, maybe it's, I'm totally wrong. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to that, Bernie? Well, I think Melissa is absolutely right. Being on the ground is really important. There's the other uh, protocol that is remote listening, where a researcher will go into the field and and, uh, strap a recorder to a tree and walk away for two weeks Uh and come back and pick up the disc and then put it on a computer and try to understand the natural world. Uh, I can't imagine anything more contrary to what it is that Melissa is doing or that I'm doing. I think it's really important to be present when that recorder is going so that you have an understanding of all the behaviors that are taking place. And you also have a sense of, of, of your presence there. I love that what you said there about, you know, uh, just to pick up on what you were saying, some people put a recorder there, they leave it and they come back to it. But you need to be there yourself. You can't conduct the natural orchestra though, Bernie. So what's the benefit of you being there? Uh, just because you're experiencing what's happening, you're part of that. You're you become as close as you can to become part of that system for that minute, with all of its various um, uh, problems at the same time. Because, right. like Melissa says, it, it is often dangerous, and uh, and one needs to be very very careful and aware. To me, it's just allowed me to become more aware of my my fragility is another animal being and we're all part of that food chain um but also i want to point out some other thing about the healing properties that people are seeing natural this has very ancient roots by the way those groups that still live connected to the natural world like the hivaro in the amazon basin or the Yanomami who live in the northern part of the Amazon, uh, northern part of Brazil, along the, the Venezuelan border, uh, like uh, the Bayaka who live in the Central African Republic in the Tsonga Tsonga rainforest. What all of these groups have in common is that when they get stressed by contact with the Western, with, with Western uh, economies in the Western world, because people are going everywhere to log now and to mine uh, the resources of the earth. What happens with these groups to the group is they'll, the, to get away from Western culture, they'll march off into the forest for three or four months at a time to actually heal. And the ways that they heal through the shamans that are part of those groups, the ways that they heal are in part by listening to natural sounds. So there's an analgesic Mm -hmm. there that is really important to consider. We don't know very much about that. And the Japanese have this this thing called forest bathing or Shinrin-yoku. That's also that they started in the late 1980s. And, uh, and it's a ritual practice where you go off into the forest and listen to natural sounds and bathe in the, in the presence of the forest. Yeah. Um, I, I find this to be fascinating and something that needs a lot more, um, a lot more attention paid to it. From my, own, from my own personal sense, I have a terrible case of ADHD. 
And th there's nothing in the world that I've ever encountered like medication or anything like that, that helps me more than being in the presence of the natural world. It could be a desert. It could be a rainforest. It could be a, a tropical rainforest or a temperate rainforest. It doesn't really matter. Just being there and smelling the smells and feeling the air on my skin and listening to those sounds makes all the difference in the world. And it's a, it's a totality of experiences that, and, and sensibilities that you get when you're there. And your whole body is immersed in it. And when you allow yourself that kind of um, being present in that space, in that time, um, it, has an, it makes an impact on you. And the impact for me is personal and it's also very healing. And that's why I do it. And that's the main reason why I do it. I've also learned that there's a scientific aspect to it and there's, a, and there's an artistic aspect to it. And I love those things. I love doing those because it, help, it, it, it gets me, both of those things um, engage me with, a, with other communities other than my own head and, and, and just the animal world. And it, 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 um, it crosses the lines of, of, uh, of making understanding of our world um, more, uh, more alive and present. I love that. Um, a few years ago, Poppy Skeeler, who's the CEO and founder of uh, Quiet Mark, she exec produced uh, a film called In Pursuit of Silence, which looks at the lives of people around the world who are seeking silence and the benefit of nature. And there's a scene in that film which ha uh, shows Shirinjuku taking place in Japan. And it's interesting because with that film, uh, I went to see it at the cinema, and there's a fair period of time before we hear a spoken voice it starts with wind blowing in the uh in the grass and and just sounds of nature and then you hear a human voice and everyone in the cinema suddenly sits up and think goodness there's a human voice they've just been lulled into this wonderful space um and as you say melissa it's not always uh a disney bird singing on snow white's windowsill it's it can be <laughs> a snake slithering in the grass, which can be like, goodness, what's that approaching me or whatever it might be. So no, I, 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 I hear, yeah. I hear it. I hear where you're coming from. I want to point something out though, Simon. It's not silence. That's, that's a term that's really misinterpreted. Silence sure. is no sound. And, and there is no part of the natural world where an organism exists, where there's no sound. All of these organisms produce some kind of signal. Yeah. Everything from viruses to large, to large, uh, the largest creature on the planet, and so it's only it's up to us to figure out how to get those and how to record those mm. and how to make signals, how to make us aware of those signals. But everything that's alive is reaching out. Yeah. It's the voice of the natural world, and it's never silent. And by the way, that observation comes from uh, from Chris Watson. And I, we were having this long discussion in uh, uh, out in in Snape in, near uh, Aldborough, and uh, when we were uh, together working on a project, and, and he says he said, Bert, he says there's no such thing as silence," <laughs> and and he said he was the one who who uh, offered the thing. He, I said, "Well, what do you have in its stead then?" He said, "Tranquility." Yeah, it's when everything seems to be expressing itself in a way that. Um, uh, shows that that illustrates the vitality of life around us. Because we're talking about this relationship of being in the ground and uh, being there, the relationship is very different. And um, three weeks ago or so, or so, or actually a little bit more, but. Um, I was uh, I was taking like um, a big walk uh, in the area where I was uh, new at the time, and I was uh, just you know trying to find spots or kind of like uh, exploratory mode, but uh, in a very free mode, just with um, something to write on. I was not having any recorder or anything like that, and I saw signs of uh, wild boars. 
Uh, and I thought, thought it was curious, but stupid me, uh, I continue uh, uh, through a path, a path that uh, was already not, not a track anymore w- w- where people could, could go. Uh, because I'm, for some reason, I'm very, uh, uh, you know, driven into those things. So I continue and I, <laughs> I keep listening to sounds that I also, oh, it should be a bore. And then it got really, really, really close. Uh, so close that actually I, I, I jumped and it was coming from my back. But uh, I think I was very lucky. I, actually, I was really lucky because the boar also gets so, he got so scared that uh, it, it ran away completely as well. Um, and that really completely changed my uh, relationship, especially the next days that I was recording there because I was so scared that I would find a wild boar because also they were having, uh, uh, you know, uh, kids, uh, uh, how do you, piglets, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a chance that the, at least the female gets a little bit more and more, more aggressive and they are seen in the village, you know, uh, I was on the places surrounding the village, which is really, really small. And that changed so much my, my experience being there so much that the next day I was um, recording, I was sitting by a lake and also my relationship when I'm having like uh, headphones, my relationship to the environment has a, a immediate change. I'm trying to be more careful with volume nowadays to kind of attenuate, attenuate there. So I'm trying to be more in the environment than within what's been recorded. And I hear a sound, something coming really fast from the reeds right behind my back. I got so scared. I, I was just jumpy. I'm not actually a scared person. I'm not really afraid, but it really changed because I've been extremely lucky so far. I, I've been, I put myself in situations that were a bit uh, stupid, uh, <laughs> such as this as the wild boar, but maybe with other kinds of uh, more dangerous animals or bigger, perhaps. And uh, I just jumped and then I turned around. It was, I think it was... Um, uh, a stork, I, but I was so, uh, you know, startled by it that I didn't even understand, you know, exactly what sort of bird it was, but I, I suppose it's a stork, but what I've seen there now. And um, uh, later, uh, a few days later, I recorded, uh, I actually I left my microphones in, uh, by the lake during the night and then I picked them up in the morning and there was a wild boar that passed right by the microphones and like smelling and walking and, and so on. And then I think it's kind of funny, like it's it sounds like a funny thing, but if I am on the ground, it's a completely different relationship. And I think it's very, very difficult for this experience to go to the listener very directly. I, I At least I don't know how, at least yet. Um, but this was for me, it was a really, uh, you know, it, very, <laughs> it was a big thing in my <laughs> field recording practice lately. So I, I just wanted to put that note out. That sounds great. Any close shaves that you've experienced, Bernie? <laughs> I've been thrown by a gorilla. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, I was in Diane Fossey's camp, the late Diane Fossey's camp in Rwanda, in Rwanda a place called Karasoki. And it was my second day in the field, and I wasn't quite used to, to being in, in the presence of these gorillas, mountain gorillas. And also, uh, uh, I, I didn't know the protocol of the group that I was recording. And so I happened to get in between uh, two males that were fighting over a female. And of course, you know, you know what happens with that. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, bravado going around and hormones <laughs> flying all over the place. And finally, one of the gorillas, uh, one of the males, the younger male, grabbed my shoulder and threw me uh, five meters through the air into equipment and all. And then I had a very heavy Nagra and other equipment that I had attached to my head and uh, threw me into this patch of stings. And I came out okay. I mean, I was fine and I learned my lesson. And I was able to nest down with them and sleep with them. So it wasn't any, you know, it wasn't any problem after a while. And also, uh, one night when we were recording in the Amazon yeah. uh, at a place called Kilometer 41. I don't know if Melissa knows that, but it was a place called Kilometer 41, just north of Manaus. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was walking down the trail with uh, a colleague, um, and uh, we could smell this was, and we could smell the scent of this jaguar uh, that was following us. We couldn't see it, but we could smell it because it was scent marking as it was as we were going along the trail. Right. And finally, uh, uh, Ruth went off in one direction. I went off in another. Um, 
and uh, the jaguar kept following me because I could still smell it. And finally, I got to a place where I sat down. I, I, I set up my microphone and recorder and, uh, and sat down to listen. And that jaguar just walked right up to the microphone and began to vocalize. And uh, I heard it in my headphones. And my first thought was, this has got to be the most extraordinary moment of my life, and I may not see much beyond it. <laughs> But it was it was so thrilling to me to hear that that um, and and to be able to survive the moment without being attacked. Uh, it, it, there, there was something about it that made me feel uh, again connected in what couldn't have been able to do any other way. I mean, certainly not certainly not walking around New York. I've never been frightened in in the natural world. Um, as I have been wary of my surroundings in the human environment. There's nothing that compares with that. As a matter of fact, when I was growing up, I grew up in, in the American Midwest in a family that was terrified of animals. And uh, they kind of um, communicated that fear to me. So when I began to work in this field very late in my life, I was 30 years old at the time, when I began to work in this field, I had to learn every aspect of what it was I was doing, including becoming familiar and comfortable. I don't say that I'm not afraid, I'm always aware, but being comfortable being in the natural world and not being frightened by the presence of these animals. I mean, Kat and I, my wife, Catherine and I were in Africa, um, camping on the Zambezi River in this island in the middle of it. And we woke up one morning in our tent and standing at the bottom at the foot of our tent um it, it was just a, a a mosquito net really but standing at the bottom of, of that uh mosquito netting uh, tent was uh an elephant um an african elephant a forest elephant and it was just standing there it was literally two or three feet from where we were sleeping and just looking at us, but its ears weren't flared or anything like that, so it wasn't very dangerous. And I asked Cat to wake up very slowly and roll over. <laughs> and it was fourteen foot animal, you know, uh, standing at the foot of our tent and just kind of sniffing around and stuff like that. I was thrilled. I was really happy with it. I had no problem with. It. But there we were, you know. So, I mean, and that's what happens when you're out there. You're going to run into things. I was. In Algonquin Park, uh, Melissa was talking about recording wolves, and I was working with uh, Murray Schaefer, the fellow who invented the term soundscape. Yeah, is really responsible for a lot of this stuff that's going on now. Yeah, and uh, we were there in in March, late March of two thousand eight, and uh, I was outside one morning recording, and. I, I was surrounded by two packs of wolves, one in front of me and one in back of me, and they were converging on one another. And I happened to capture this this moment of these wolves, and this one kid was with me, and he was hanging onto my arm. He, he was uh, on the spectrum with autism, and he, he was hanging onto my arm really tight. He was terrified, and he said to me, are we going to be okay? I said, I'm in heaven. I said, we're going to be just fine. Just cool it and relax. These guys are not after us. And and you could literally see the color of the wolf's eyes in front of me, oh not, my God. not 20 meters away. Uh, and we were recording them, and we recorded them for like half an hour. And that's part of the Cartier exhibit, by the way. Amazing. Did you see the color of the wolf's eyes, Melissa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very close. I, I had I had made a mistake of facing a wolf in the eyes, and uh, I learned my lesson because she didn't like it. What did she do? She was the most social wolf, so she would approach actually um, every time I was passing by since the first or second day. And but one day I it, it was extremely stupid of me, um, and uh, she uh, she growled 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 at me growled yeah and yeah, yeah she was a little less uh, open for the next couple of days i really noticed a, a difference um they are socially very interesting creatures but it's uh, it's my fault it was a stupid mistake of me to do that 
Well, you know what? On my list of questions, the next question was, how would you recommend someone get started with field recording? And I think getting thrown around by gorillas and stared in the eyes by wolves. I don't know if that's enticing to people or not, but if people are crazy, oh, Simon, to, yeah, go for it, Bernie. You're missing the best of all. <laughs> We're recording in, in uh, Sequoia National Park, just <laughs> south of Yosemite here in yeah. And uh, one night, and a black bear came up to my microphone. And remember, the microphone is only the cable is only ten meters long. Right. So th this black bear came up to my microphone <laughs> and completely <laughs> the microphone in his mouth. I have the only stereo recording of what it's to be inside wow. the bear's wow. mouth. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> is that is is there a is there a We're link to here. that anywhere? Is there a link available to that being inside a bear's mouth? No, but you know I'd have the recording. Oh, obviously. I want it. So, <laughs> I'd love to hear that. No, but those are the things. Yeah, those are the things though that people gravitate to to say, "See, nature is dangerous yeah. and, it's, and it's strong." I yeah. hate that stuff. That's as that's as as bad for me as seeing people. Uh, make uh these disney recordings right. of animals and and showing this disney kind of i don't like either one of those things because that's not the way i experience the natural world right it's an exaggeration yeah this is true i was actually checking uh um, the deadliest animals uh and i was checking three sources and after mosquitoes it's actually the dog that kills more people the dog yeah so, you know, no wolves, no bears, not even wild boars. Um, I always uh, had the feeling that uh, animals are not going to be, you know, uh, uh, just attacking you just because. I think we are the ones that do that. Uh, we kind of attack because. Uh, when Bernie was saying now that, um, uh, you know, it's more frightening sometimes to be somehow to be amongst the, the urban environment. I feel exactly the same. Um, one, I think actually what scared me most in terms of recordings in the Atlantic Forest overall, but happened in the Atlantic Forest. Um, I picked my microphones uh, one morning and I was uh, going through in the spectrogram, checking like what could be, you know, some major events. And I saw something very specific at some point and it should be around two in the morning. And then it was people in a private area where they really shouldn't be and, you know, closest to where me and like other volunteers were sleeping and that was the scariest feeling of all mm. that was really really scary and you, i clearly heard this person uh, walking through the forest stopping in front of the equipment mm -hmm. for a while mm -hmm. and then leaving in the opposite direction and um, in a way it was good that that happened because then we knew there was poachers there usually they were going you know after some sort of monkeys there but it was the it, it was a really I was just really, you know, sh with a lot of uh, shivers uh, up my spine uh, because it was um, it felt so wrong, so almost obscene somehow, you know. Uh, other than that, I mean, I had the experience with the wild boar, uh, uh, of course, because it was uh, you know a sudden thing. But and I'm always alone. Um, but uh, you know, nothing like a black uh, panther. I, I read that in your book, uh, Bernie, and also about the gorilla, uh, like three or four years ago. <laughs> I haven't told you about the polar bear, we'll save that for another time. <laughs> no, it's, don't save it. What happened with the polar bear, Bernie? <laughs> oh, come on, let's let's move on because uh, time is getting oh, short. Time for is me. getting short. Okay, well, the polar bear yeah. will have to wait for we'll put that one on ice. <laughs> said don't, no pun intended Please. um yeah. hopefully, uh, nice, yeah. <laughs> hopefully nice hopefully yeah. nice <laughs> rounding things up um any listeners to the show bernie will know i'm a huge music fan of a drummer and i often speak about david byrne how music works i talk about brian nino's music for airports and you know and i'm my love of the beatles and there in the introduction i was reading of your working with those names amongst others um tell you were working with moog synthesizers in the early days give us a quick appraisal of your musical adventures what was going on there when paul and i introduced the, the synthesizer to pop music and film in the mid 60s mm -hmm. uh, we had a real hard time it was uh it, it wasn't an acceptable instrument and nobody really understood um what could be done with it 
so Paul and I really tried to to um, capture the attention of people in Hollywood because that's where all of the recording uh, work was being done pretty much. And we couldn't get any traction. We worked for a year. We went to a hundred different uh, producers and, and record companies and we got nothing. And so finally with our last $300, we rented a booth at, at um, the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967 where all of the artists kind of, it was really kind of a convert point. Um, uh, and we set up our, our synthesizer there and all of these artists who were getting signed at the, at the, uh, at the, at the festival yeah. would sneak into the, into, into the, uh, the tent where we were, where our booth was set up and, and play the, the synthesizer a little bit. And almost every one of them who had new, new money in their pockets, hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes like the doors, um, they bought these instruments. They right. bought, so they bought the Moog synthesizer, which was at that time fifteen thousand dollars. Wow! And, and of course, so Paul and I sold quite a few of them. And the problem was that when they were delivered, the musicians who had ordered them were too stoned to play. <laughs> so, so we ended up in the studio. Um, you know, first of all, weeks before, with no work at all. And finally, we were working 80 hours a week, each of us, huh. in different studios on synthesizer with all these artists. I don't even remember most of the artists. When, when, when uh, I reconnected with Peter Gabriel in 2014, when we were there for the WOMED yeah. event, uh, he, I had not even recalled that I worked with him. And uh, it was like that. I mean, we went from we went from place to place to place, and and just worked with these different musicians on different albums. So I don't recall a lot of that. Um, and but we worked with uh, we. Cat and I said, Cat says to me when we're in the car, she says, "You know Peter Gabriel?" <laughs> I said, no. It never even occurred to me that I knew it. Um, um, but anyway, anyway. Um, I, I don't know what to say about that, except that uh, I was able to work with a lot of musicians, and um, I don't remember most of them. Well, no, uh, I worked. On, I, I worked have... on a lot of films. If somebody hadn't really gone through the list and said you worked on this, 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 I wouldn't know what <laughs> films I worked on. It was just work. And and is with the films, someone, was that me? Always... Oh, sorry, Cat, go ahead. Um, there's always someone popping out as at us somewhere <laughs> in the world that worked with Bernie and knows Bernie and, mm. and remembers Bernie, whether it's a, a film director or a musician or an artist, uh, we we find them all over the place. So I'm often saying to them, I didn't know you knew them. And he said, I didn't either. <laughs> um, but, I, but I did want to just say about uh, listening to this wonderful dialogue. Um, you know, we learned about Quiet Mark quite a long time ago because of course, being interested in, in natural soundscape and, and uh, um, recording in the wild, it leads directly into the kind of increase in noise that's happening in the world and has happened over the past uh, decade um, exponentially. It's just getting noisier and noisier. In addition to that, there is the noise of what I call the spectacle. People are getting flooded with so much information and it's not any wonder, especially after lockdown, that there's tremendous anxiety out there um, for a lot of the population. And for stories like the ones that Bernie tells and Melissa tells of being able to be in the wild, I think the thing that resonates and comes through is the um, idea of the sense of aliveness that comes from being in those environments. And I think that's one of the things that, that people seem to want, whether it's in the romantic kind of Disney film idea of, of the pastel uh, nature scenario, or with the more dynamic um, and intense uh, kind of situations like the ones that have been described that can happen to a nature recordist in the field. But how regular people, um, non-recordists, I mean, or non-artists or non-scientists even, connect to the work is really an important thing. One of the things that attracted us to Quiet Mark was the way that you all took um, quietude into culture 
in meaning how does it affect our lives together? How does it affect how we live in our everyday lives to have awareness between noise and quiet, between silence and tranquility? And that it becomes very apparent and very important now in particular for people. Um, and I think that the work of uh, soundscape ecologists, in a way, it's a wonderful thing that they have the recordings because everybody can't get there. Everybody can't go in the field. Often even the nature recorders that want to go in the field can't because of budget, because of, of uh, politics, because of travel, you know, whatever it is. Um, these are hard places to get to. And these artists and scientists go to a great deal of effort to um, to be able to fund their trips, to be able to do these trips, often at, at personal risk and personal expense. So I think one of the things for people that connect with the work, that like this work, that find it of interest, that they can do, even if they don't necessarily have a recorder in hand, is they can find a soundscape ecologist that they like, or recordist, or musician, or someone working in this field, and in whatever way they can support them. They can do the, some social networking about them. They can do some fundraising for them. They can uh, donate to, to them whatever in whatever way that they want, because all of these people doing this work need that support. This is not, you know, a, a terribly well-known or popular um, warm, fuzzy animal with a bow around its neck that someone wants to save and, and will donate to. But it's very important because this, in fact, is the work that is being the, is, is, is allowing the curation of the art and music that these animals are creating. So we're the curators. They're the artists. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> one, other, one other thing. Here's, ah. here's the coda. We got to go to David Bowie's after. Oh, you do have to go there. <laughs> the future belongs to those who can hear it coming. Thank you for that. Thank you guys so much for all your wonderful contributions and uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. All the best to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye, Melissa. Bye bye. Nice to see you again. Well, all of that conversation about field recording has inspired me to get outside on my bike. I'm sitting here in Gunnersbury Park. You can probably hear the M4 somewhere in the background, but I'm in the deepest part that I could find, surrounded by trees. My dog, Romeo, sitting in the grass beside me, panting after a good run. It was a wonderful recording, and we're really grateful to Bernie and Melissa for taking the time to share their stories with us. And also to Bernie's wife, Kat, who joined the conversation at the end and actually saved me having to do a summary of the conversation because she summed it up so perfectly. I really liked what she had to say about how being field recordists and listening to nature had intensified their awareness of the growing loudness of the planet and what attracted her and Bernie and Melissa to Quiet Mark and our podcast was the work that we do to bring quietude into culture. I couldn't summarise it better myself, so I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to encourage you to listen to Bernie and Melissa's recordings, links to which I will include at the bottom of the feature about this podcast episode, which is going to be in the next issue of Quiet Times, issue 4, which comes out in the next day or two, which is mid-August 2021. If you haven't already subscribed to Quiet Times, you can do so through quietmark.com. Alongside Bernie and Melissa's story in issue 4, We'll also be sharing a summary of our previous podcast episode with Richard King from Sandy Brown Associates, in which, as part of a Freedom Day special, we look at the challenges presented by creating beautiful acoustics in large open public spaces. Earlier in the program, we heard Melissa talking about her soundograms, her Instagram posts, which are a still image accompanied by a few seconds of audio recording from that location. And seeing these in the lead up to this episode has inspired me to do a few Instagram story sound recordings myself, and I've really enjoyed it. Over the past few days, I've shared soundscapes from various London parks and also beaches. I've recently been to Rye and Margate, and wherever I go, I make a quick recording and share 30 seconds of it on Quiet Mark's Instagram stories. But doing so for me has become more than just a quick social media gimmick. 
When I stop to record something, I really listen to the surrounding that I'm in first and ask myself, is this an interesting soundscape? What can I hear? Is this worth sharing? It's good fun, certainly. With this episode going out in mid-August 2021, there's only a few more days of summer left, so get outside, armed with your microphone, well, your phone at least. I tell you what, here's an idea. If you capture 30 seconds of something interesting shot in portrait mode on your phone, then do feel free to share it with us at email us at quietmark.com. That's email us at quietmark.com. And who knows, we may even share it on our Quiet Mark stories. For now, thank you for listening. We've got some great episodes in the pipeline, so stay tuned and we look forward to you joining us again in the near future. Enjoy the summer and bye for now.